0: I invite you to take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And we'll look together at verses 19 through 30. Thank you, TBC students, for leading us in worship. It is a joy to watch you grow in Christ and in your service to Him. It's so thrilling to be a part of your lives and your journey in this season of your lives. Thank you, Dr. Dockery, for the invitation. And the honor to preach in this series of messages through the book of Philippians a book that I've loved all of my Christian life, for its themes and its encouragement. And I want to say thank you also to my faculty colleagues that have already guided us so well through the text up to this point. And as I heard Dr. Treywick and Dr. Bradford and Dr. Taylor and Dr. Grace in their particular passages, I'm like, Ooh, I need to write that down for my sermon that's coming up here in a few weeks. As they were hitting on certain themes that I thought, man, Please don't steal my thunder, Dr. Taylor. Please leave me something. Uh, Dr. McKinney reminded me, he said, you know, it's kind of like we had a um, fantasy sermon, you know, group together, and I missed out, and I got this text because I wasn't there. Because if you're looking at this text, you're kind of thinking, what in the world is he gonna talk about with respect to Timothy and Epaphroditus? And this is part of the genius of expository preaching is it gives you uh, two different ways to approach the preaching of God's word. Number one, it helps us avoid hobby horse preaching, that we just take those texts that we love and that we're comfortable with and we, we just go after it all the time. And it also forces us into preaching difficult texts of scripture and also mundane texts in scripture. And for that reason, I want to preach today about a ministerial manual in the mundane. As we think about the verses that Dr. Dockery read a few minutes ago, uh, it's interesting when you look at this that essentially what Paul is providing for us is a travel narrative. He's talking about plans to send Timothy, plans to send Epaphroditus to the church at Philippi. And we're, we're kind of reeling from this because we just read in verses five through 11 this deeply theological and high Christology that Paul has given us to think about the humility and servanthood of Jesus Christ, and then we come to travel plans? Really, Paul, that's how you're gonna gonna give us whiplash in this way. But we need to talk about this because there is grace in the mundane. I think about that when you look at Paul's letters across the corpus of his writings, it's not unusual for Paul to talk about what he's going to do and where he's going to be going. He does that to the church in Thessalonica, to the church at Corinth, and specifically to Timothy in the letter that he wrote to him in 1 Timothy. Gordon Fee, New Testament scholar who wrote a commentary on Philippians, says it this way, It is easy to view this material as mundane, which in a sense it is, and to neglect it as of little import, which it of course is not. After all, this is the stuff of which letters are made. On the other hand, neither should we make too much of it, as some have done, and thus give it greater significance than Paul intends. What this section does for us is put all kinds of things into perspective as to the reasons for the letter. This is the stuff that letters are made of. When I was a college student at Blue Mountain College in North Mississippi, uh, I didn't really go home. To Arkansas, where my grandparents were who had raised me for the summers. Instead, I felt God's call and I chose to go on a summer long missions opportunity through the Baptist Student Union. So every summer of my collegiate experience, I went somewhere. I went to California in the Bay Area. I went to uh, outside of Washington, D.C. in Maryland and served a specific church there. I went to Israel and served for an entire summer in Israel. But when I was in Maryland, I would receive letters from my grandfather some of which I rediscovered recently after my father passed away. We found a box of a lot of documents and in that box were many letters to me that my grandfather had written while I was on missions. And I read through some of those letters and it was fascinating to me how boring they were. How Monday, granddad's talking about uh, babe and I, that's what he referred to his wife as my grandmother. Babe and I went to McDonald's today we hope to go to the grocery store tomorrow. Um, he would say, obviously, a lot, lot more things than that. I love you, son. I'm praying for you. Um, I hope the gospel's going forth. Many different, deeply personal things. But as I reread those letters, I recognized I am hearing, again, in my mind and in my heart, the voice of my grandfather. This letter is deeply personal. It's not just a... A formal thing. It's not just impersonal, hey, this is a laundry list of things we're doing, but this is him having a conversation with me in this letter. And I suspect that's what Paul's doing for the church at Philippi. It may seem mundane that he's just going through a travel itinerary and narrative of sorts, but it's so much more than that. A passage like this ought to serve as a constant reminder to all of us, scholar, pastor, Bible student, that the New Testament was written in the context of real people in a very real world. Biblical texts are so often the scholar's playground or the believer's rule book without adequate appreciation for the truly human nature of the text. Paul lived as a believer in a world surrounded by friends, friends that brought him joy, things that would occur among these friends that might ultimately bring him sorrow upon sorrow that he talks about even in our verses that fill him with immeasurable grief. This is so true. And in a letter filled with commands to rejoice always, Paul speaks of his sorrow at the thought of potentially losing his friend Epaphroditus to death. He speaks of how anxious he is for the Philippians to be at peace with seeing Epaphroditus again, and yet he tells us just in chapter 4 to be anxious for nothing. This is a very personal and real and gritty and human perspective. So though it may be mundane, these travel plans are important. You notice twice in the text that Paul hopes to send Timothy to the Philippian church. In verse 19 and verse 23, for what reasons do we learn? Well, we read from the text that it is to bring news of Paul's situation to the church at Philippi. After all, Paul is in prison, awaiting kind of more decisions on that. But he's also wanting to receive back from Philippi through Timothy news about the progress of the gospel at Philippi. And so he hopes to send Timothy soon. Notice also that Paul has his own confidence in coming to Philippi himself again. Paul already stated this in chapter one, verses 25 and 26, that it's better for him not to depart and be with the Lord, but for their benefit to stick around, that they might grow in the faith and have more joy. And so he's gonna remain and he's gonna see them again soon. Here's a man riding from prison. And he's saying, this is my confidence in the Lord. I'm gonna see you again face to face. And then he says, thirdly, in this travel narrative that It's necessary for him to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi. For what reason? Well, to alleviate the concerns and the distress over the news that they would have heard about him falling ill and almost dying on his way to deliver the gift that they'd collected for Paul. That was the nature of his mission. Go take this to Paul. Be with him in our absence. And by the way, that last verse, 30, that we're looking at today to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me, we have so often read that in a pejorative sense. It's not meant to be that way. Basically what Paul is saying is, look, that he is stepping in for you. In your absence, he is fulfilling ministry obligation. He is a messenger on your behalf to me and he's blessing me on your behalf. So what is lacking that you can't provide is a whole community of believers. He's doing it for you. So it's necessary to send Epaphroditus back, but also that Paul would send this very letter by the hand of Epaphroditus as well. Deeply personal, profoundly human, jarringly normal stuff. From the apostle. And yet it's intentionally rooted in Paul's chief concern for the progress of the gospel. Mundane, yes. Unimportant, no way. So let's think about not just the mundane, but let's also think about this ministry manual, if I could call it that. Uh, more like instructions for ministry or instructions how to consider serving as a follower of Jesus In light of what Paul's already said in this letter, embedded in these mundane travel plans, if we're paying attention, are instructions for true ministry. Or maybe better said, examples worthy of honor and imitation. Philippians chapter two, verse 19, continues Paul's themes of humility and selfless servanthood. And here we read of two men, Who've taken the example of the Lord seriously, that example that Paul is already reflecting for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain, but Jesus has already demonstrated to a maximal degree, not exploiting the glory of his status as the divine, eternal one with the Father. He took upon human nature and became a servant for us and for our salvation. These two men have given themselves in obedient, faithful service to God and to others. And he does this in two ways. Paul gives a commendation for Timothy and a commendation for Epaphroditus. It's fascinating that he would do that because the Philippian church already knows these guys. They know who Timothy is. He's been with them. They certainly know who Epaphroditus is because he's taken the gift to Paul for Paul's benefit. So why a commendation as if that's needed to recognize the importance of these men? Well, because... Paul says there are some examples worthy of imitation, and here are two. Let's think about the commendation of Timothy, verses 19 through 23. You may know a lot about Timothy, but I'll just remind you that he is a native of Lystra in Galatia, son of a Greek father with a Jewish mother. Paul talks about Timothy's mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and also in chapter 3, how Eunice and Lois raised Timothy on the Old Testament scriptures. From his very infancy, he's been learning and hearing and reading the scriptures of the Old Testament. And at some point, Paul, in his first missionary journey, comes through Galatia into Lystra and wins Timothy to Christ. And from there... The rest is history, so to speak. He spends the remainder of his time with Paul. I mean, for nearly a decade by the time of writing Philippians, he's already been with Paul through thick and thin, through missionary journey, through preaching, through difficulty and so much more. He's seen Paul in prison not once, but he'll see him again in prison twice. This is a man who is committed to the gospel. Paul mentored Timothy in the gospel ministry. Not as just another servant of the gospel, but Paul uses this language about Timothy as his son in the faith. He's says, son, not a son in the flesh. He didn't give birth to him, but he's a son in the faith. And when he looks at Timothy and when he looks at Titus, for example, these are children of mine in the faith. I've watched them be birthed into the kingdom and I've seen them grow through infancy and adolescence into maturity in the faith. And Paul boasts in this. You're my son. Therefore, I can send you, Timothy. I can send you, Titus, anywhere that I want you to go because you are going to not only reflect family values, but you're gonna teach and train as if I were there myself. I mean, think about his words about Timothy in this text. He says that Timothy is selfless, right? Isn't that what he says in verses 20 through 21? I mean, look at this. For I have no one else like-minded, of the, of the same soul, he says, who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Conversely, Timothy is not like everybody else. He's not interested in seeking his own interests, his own agenda. He's interested in the agenda of Jesus. And in so doing, that selflessness is going to be for the benefit of others to the glory of God. We've been talking about this all through the book of Philippians up to this point. And Timothy is demonstrating not selfish ambition that produces rivalry and envy and all those other things. No, no, no. He is different. He's like-minded with Paul. Paul who. who if it were up to him, would go to be with Jesus, but chooses for himself if it's up to him to stay with the Philippians for their benefit. That kind of selflessness reflected not just in Paul, but in like-minded Timothy. I was struck by 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul says to a different church about Timothy, he says these words, therefore, Paul says, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I sent, Timothy to you. Now look at this. I want you to imitate me. This is why I sent Timothy, my son in the faith. He is my dearly loved and faithful son in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in the church. He's like-minded to Paul. He's selfless. He's not seeking his own interests, but those of Christ Jesus. This humility and beneficial servanthood to others. Not only is he selfless, but he's also seasoned. The terminology that Paul uses about Timothy in verse 22 is that the Philippians know his proven character. He's been tested. He's been tested and he's been found faithful. Tested in this way as a Minister of the gospel. I mean, even on the second missionary journey of Paul, as they're uh, talking about in Acts chapter 20, coming back into Philippi, it's Timothy with Paul. They serve among the Philippians. So the Philippians have had a chance to hear Timothy teach and preach. They've watched him serve for King Jesus in difficult times and in great times. They've watched all of this up close and personal. And Paul says, you know, you know his proven character. He's tested. Not just that, but in every other instance, that Paul mentions in his letters about Timothy, that Timothy does not fail. He does not fail to honor Paul in reflecting his teaching and his life. He does not fail in serving King Jesus to the uttermost. It's interesting, isn't it, that Timothy is this young, timid pastor that needs to be reminded, don't fear people. And yet one who is so humble and selfless and faithful and courageous, this same person, the the thing is this, none of us are perfect. We all have our flaws and our blind spots and need for growth. Certainly Timothy is there as well. Paul says, when you look at him, imitate him because he's imitating me because I'm imitating Christ. Timothy is selfless, he's seasoned. Paul says he's also servant hearted. In verse 22, we see very specific language that the reason why Paul is gonna be sending him is because he served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Served. He served with me. He didn't exalt himself above me. He didn't preach to harm me like some of the others are doing in Rome and elsewhere. He, he's, he's not the... He served alongside me. He served with me. We're co-laborers in this work of the gospel. And it's not just that he's trying to please me, his father in the faith, but he served with me in the gospel ministry. This is his focus, to be servant-hearted and faithful out of his love for Paul, but also out of his love for the gospel. These two things are clear. So Paul's commendation of Timothy is clear. You look at Timothy, When he comes to you, I hope to send him soon, as soon as possible. Hope to send him as soon as we figure out what's gonna happen with me. But when he gets there, I want you to hear good things from us, but I also wanna receive good things about you in the progress of the gospel. Honor men like him. Secondly, he gives a commendation of Epaphroditus in verses 25 through 30. And before that, I just wanna mention an aside in verse 24, because Paul says, I'm confident in the Lord that I'm gonna come. You know how that strikes me when I read that? Here's Paul, who's in shackles, he's in prison, house arrest, whatever's going on, he is under the governmental control. He can't travel, he can't do what he wants to do. But Paul says, I'm confident in the Lord that I'm coming to you again soon. You know what he's saying? I trust in the sovereign authority of Jesus more than Caesar. Caesar thinks he's calling the shots. Caesar thinks he's holding all the cards, Ultimately, not so. It's not what Caesar determines or decides is what's gonna happen. It's up to the Lord, and I'm confident that I will continue in person to bless you and minister among you. The confidence of Paul is dripping all over the pages as he commends Timothy, and secondly, as he commends Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is not an apostle like Paul. He's not an elder or a pastor like Timothy. Timothy. We have no record of his family, no record of his conversion, how long he'd known Christ or any specific office he may have held in the church. We don't have any information about that. His name, as Dr. Taylor reminded us, uh, I should demur to him as a New Testament scholar, but he said Epaphroditus. Do you remember that? Epaphroditus, I'd never heard that before. Dr. Dockery supported him and said, absolutely. It's the way it should be said, but we're Anglo right here. So we say Epaphroditus. But we look at this and what does his name mean? Epaphroditus, belonging to Aphrodite. Isn't that interesting? So his family would have been Greeks. They would have been committed to probably a pagan way of life. And yet at some point in the ministry of the gospel in Philippi, Epaphroditus won to Jesus and becomes a faithful servant of him. In some, he's an average person like you and me. He's an average church member. Not a notable preacher, not a notable teacher, not an outstanding leader like Timothy. Yet he lived out his faith in an extraordinary way for the sake of the gospel. Paul, like Timothy, commends Epaphroditus in these ways. He says that Epaphroditus is compassionate. Verse 26 is just pregnant with Epaphroditus's love and concern for others. I mean, the fact that he is distressed, that he's longing to go back to the church of Philippi because he, he's concerned about how worried they are over him. He, he knows they would have heard that he's sick and that he possibly died. And I don't know, maybe there's a sense in which as some commentators have argued that Epaphroditus for these reasons might also be homesick, he wants to go home. I've been there. Have you? I mean, you're engaged in the work for the Lord, maybe in a different field of service and you miss your family, you miss your friends, you miss what is normal and comfortable to you. I get it. and Maybe Epaphroditus is feeling this way, but for the very least we recognize his heart is full of compassion for his brothers and sisters back home that he wants to alleviate that distress that they're having over the news of his sickness and near death. It's not a bad thing. It's a great thing that Paul commends him for his compassion. Paul also commends him for his courage. That Epaphroditus is courageous. I mean, the way he describes him in verse 25, my fellow soldier. Interesting language for Paul. He obviously starts with, he's my brother. He's my coworker. But he says, my fellow soldier. And military language is... Fairly unusual for Paul in his writings, a lot of athletic metaphors and nautical metaphors that we read, but military metaphors, pretty uncommon for Paul. But he just mentioned that the gospel is making inroads in the house of Caesar among the Praetorian Guard. so maybe he's recognizing, hey, I've got my own context with military people around me. And also, Philippi was founded as a military colony in the Roman Empire. So interestingly, that Paul would say, you look at this man, average servant. Of the church. Normal Christian, soldier, worthy of honor and commendation. Why is that? As we see in the text, that as an envoy of the church at Philippi, he's on a dangerous mission. He's on a a dangerous mission, mission as a messenger for the church. Think about this church collects money to send to Paul. Well, that's no big deal, is it? Well, it kind of is because this man has to carry it 800 miles on foot among robbers and thieves. We don't know how much money it was, but it should be significant enough to take care of Paul while he's in prison, right? So he probably had traveling companions to help him out. I think that's probably true. We see that elsewhere when the collection in the Church of Corinth is being taken up that men travel together on this. But it's dangerous. Paul says he's a soldier. He he is risking his life. And even more than that, we recognize that when he's en route to Rome, he falls deathly ill. And what kind of courage does it take to say, you know what? I'm going to put it all on the line and I'm going to risk it for everything. I'm going to keep going, even if it costs me my life. Now, my temptation would be, let's go back home. I got to see mama I want to be around family and friends. We haven't made it that far just yet. It'd be cool. We can regroup and send the money later. No, not for Epaphroditus. He says, I'm all in. I'm going. And this kind of courage is so encouraging, isn't it? Risking his life for the gospel, for Paul, for the Philippians. Courageous indeed. He also, thirdly, commends Epaphroditus as one who is... Committed. It's committed. Personal sacrifice is clear in the text. I mean, he almost paid this cost with his very life. For Epaphroditus, it seems that no cost is too great for the work of Jesus, not even his very life. Some of us, maybe even sitting in this room, may pay that price for the kingdom of Christ. No cost is too great for the glory of Jesus among the nations of the world for people to hear of the glorious news of salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. No cost is too great to do that. And that God would call you, God would entrust you and me to carry that message so that people might be gathered around his throne in glory. No cost is too great for that. And some of us may be in context where through sickness and through homesickness and maybe even death, that pay this committed price of sacrifice. Paphroditus was prepared to do that. And so in these commendations, we have a ministerial manual, an instruction of ministry of sorts on how to live and conduct ourselves in the gospel as humble, selfless servants of Christ. Paul will later say it if you look in chapter 3, verse 17. He says it plainly. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. Okay, Paul, you see how he does this. He starts singular, goes to plural. Imitate me, but that's why I'm sending Timothy to you so that you can get from us what you need. Join in imitating me, Paul says, but pay attention to the example you have in. In us, when you receive Timothy, who's gonna be coming to you soon, when you see Epaphroditus, who is necessary to sin, and we're all gathered together with the symphony and harmony of the gospel in our love for you and in our teaching among you and in our service to you in Christ, that you will see in us an example that is consistent. Pay attention to it. Not just that, but live it. Imitate it. Do this, what you see in us. Well, I have to land the plane at some point. And it's okay. I might even let you go early. I say that to my classes all the time. They never believe me. You never know. But can I leave you with, as we kind of land the plane on this sermon, three exhortations from these commendations of these great servants of Jesus. Three exhortations that come directly from the text. Exhortation one, simply this, prioritize the interest of Christ in your life. Prioritize the interest of Christ in your life. You know what's interesting? When you read this, this servanthood, this humility is in the interest of others. And I think we need to, we, we need to get it correct that if we're truly gonna have the interest of Christ, we have to have the interest of others in view. This can go wonky in a lot of ways, I'm just gonna tell you. I've seen it, I've seen it in ministry. I've seen people who have have preached and who have given themselves to the interests of others because of the fear of man. It's not really about the fear of Christ, It's not. but I'm just gonna kind of cave to the opinions of everybody around me. I'm doing it for Jesus, but it's really because I'm afraid of people. I've also seen it in a sense where the interests of others becomes... A means of personal gain. So this person's opinion matters because I know they're gonna give a bunch of money to the church. This person's opinion matters because I recognize that he's gonna help me achieve something else. So it's not really about the benefit of someone else. It's kind of on the surface of things, but really it's for personal benefit. And then I've also seen it in such a way as maybe more nefarious than anything that we can put the interest of others first in an effort that we can be a surrogate savior. And we're not. We're not. I mean, listen, we all point to Jesus. And we don't, we don't wanna be a stand-in for Jesus. We don't have to be. He's king of all kings, Lord of all lords. He is strong with no weakness. He is merciful and kind. We've seen it in this text. We don't need to present ourselves as servants of Christ as surrogates for Christ. And so let's not get this sideways. This really is what it means. The interest of others is the interest of others for the sake of the gospel. And when we do that, we will have the interest of Christ first and foremost in our part. So prioritize the interest of Christ. Can I share one more example? Meredith will remember this from our time in seminary in Kentucky. We were members of Hunsinger Lane Baptist Church a great pastor who's now in in Mississippi serving faithfully. There was a church member uh, named Brian Schaffner in Unsinger Lane, and he wasn't really a quadriplegic. He was kind of a triplegic because he had use of one arm for which he could drive his wheelchair. And also he had a QWERTY board, you know, like a keyboard printed out on a thing, and he would literally spell out the words to communicate with others. And I observed in many, many cases at church where people perceive Brian to be a nuisance, an interruption. I mean, I confess my, my own sins in this regard. I got Benjamin in a little carrier. I got Meredith on her way out to the car because we're gonna go to lunch with friends. And boom, Brian runs into me with his wheelchair And he's so happy and he's smiling and it's very clear to me that he wants to talk. So I set Benjamin down and I got very good at anticipating what he was gonna spell out on that QWERTY board. So we would actually have some pretty good conversations. But you know what else I noticed about this kind of prioritization of the needs of others? As I watched people feed him at church fellowships, I watched men carry him into the bathroom and take care of him in the bathroom. I watched people love on him in so many intangible ways and I thought, this is it. This is the interest of Christ. This is what Christ would do for Brian. What Brian cannot do for himself. He's now with the Lord, gonna be with the Lord. But I just reflect on this, that no person is a nuisance or a disruption in the kingdom of God. We are to prioritize others and so prioritize the interest of Christ. Let's be faithful to do that. Secondly, pour yourself out for the work of Christ. I'll just encourage you, whatever it takes, to sacrifice everything for the sake of Jesus and his gospel, to lay down your life. This is, this is taking up our cross and following him, right? Listen, if we need to sacrifice social media, if we need to sacrifice relationships, if we, if we need to sacrifice unhealthy things in our life that are barriers for, for us from truly engaging and getting into the work of the kingdom of God, let's do that. No cost is too great. Because if you're, if you're unwilling to sacrifice little things, for Jesus. When he calls you to greater sacrifice, how much more difficult is it gonna be? So pour out yourself for for the work of Christ in the gospel. Lastly, as a third exhortation, not just prioritize the interests of Jesus, not just pour out yourself for the work of Jesus, but pursue the imitation of godly examples rejoice over them. Don't, don't be jealous of other examples. You look at someone, man, they pray more than I do. They preach better than I do. They, they, they're so much more committed. They give more money. We can, we can have a side-eye glance toward people in a sense of envy and rivalry because we're not as they are, even for the sake of Christ. But this is not what Paul is saying. He's saying, imitate them. Rejoice over what you see in their life and pattern yourself after those things that are in the interest of Christ. So rejoice over them and replicate their devotion. You can do this. It may cost you, it costs them. But we can imitate them in as much as they are imitating Christ. And thanks be to God for faithful pastors who serve with no thanks and no gratitude, no encouragement. No necessary benefit to their lives financially or in status or in it, but they are plugging along in the work of the kingdom in various fields of service all around the world. Thanks be to God. Let's honor men like this and pattern our devotion after their own. And thanks be to God for faithful church members who show up every time the doors are open, who give themselves exhaustively for the work of Jesus in service that never seen by the greater body of Christ and yet we might become aware of it so we give them greater honor and we should. But our imitation should not be that we boast in ourself and we raise all of our levels of servanthood to the awareness of everybody else. You know what, don't do that. Let someone else boast in your honor as Paul did for Timothy and for Epaphroditus.